Biblically, we usually identify the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ with small rural villages in Palestine, where the Lord Jesus faithfully ministered, as we read in the gospels. And this is the very reason that many Christians are shocked to learn that the church in the book of Acts was almost entirely urban. Historian Wayne Mee Meeks writes, within a decade of the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, the village culture of Palestine has been left behind, and the Greco-Roman city became the dominant environment of the Christian movement. Yes, the church began in the city of Jerusalem, and then it spread to other cities, including Samaria and Damascus, Caesarea and Antioch and Syria. And then launching from Antioch, Paul and his other early church associates were able to share the good news of Jesus throughout the known civilized world. In fact, in the last decade of the Apostle Paul's life, he was able to write to the church in Rome in Romans 15, verse 19, where he said, So from Jerusalem all the way around to Elycrium, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. In today's message, which includes Acts chapters 13 and Acts chapter 14, the gospel is proclaimed in six different cities, both beginning and ending in Antioch. And this is also what is known as the Apostle Paul's first missionary journey. Now let me offer a slight disclaimer on this introduction today because it may come across like the early church no longer ministered in rural areas and just strategically targeted urban areas. And this isn't simply true. Because of Acts chapter 8, uh, that demonstrates Philip was traveling through a remote area when he encounters this Ethiopian Enoch. And he helps this man solidify his faith in Christ and then he baptizes him. And this demonstrates that they ministered to people as they traveled along. In addition, these early church missionaries headquartered in urban areas or certain places where they would encounter travelers who they would reach out to, starting at Pentecost. And many of those people would return to their homes, bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ with them to share in their communities. And many of those were rural communities. And a classic example of this is also the Apostle Paul ministering in Colossa, to which churches in Laodicea and Hierapolis were started. And it is, it is believed that Paul never went to Hierapolis. But yet it's his ministry that led others to Christ that then started a church in Hierapolis. Now please understand that because of the peace of Rome, which was called Pax Romana, meaning the rule of law, and then the extensive network of developed roads that made for better and for the most part safer travel, along with the common Greek language of the day and even Latin for many, and the strong economy of Rome, it meant that people living in rural areas would market their produce, their products, their livestock in the urban areas. And in so doing, they would encounter cultural influences that they would then bring back to their rural communities. All of this helped to advance the spread of the gospel. Now, historically in America, rural communities have generally lagged behind uh, urban churches and urban communities by basically a decade. In our own denomination, which originally was founded in the 1880s by Swedish immigrants who had come to America, it was ratified as a denomination at its annual meeting, first ever annual meeting, in 1885 as the Swedish Mission Covenant Church of America. And worship services from that point on were held in Swedish. 
until the mid-1920s. And then there was this mass exodus of young people from the church. See, these young adults who had grown up in America were speaking the English language, and they did not want to go to Swedish-only speaking language churches. So most of our urban churches in our denomination wanting to stop the hemorrhaging of their young people from the church, they went to English-only services by 1928, 1929. Our congregation here, Mission Covenant Church in Poplar, Wisconsin, didn't make this transition until 1936. And then for a number of years, still had one service per month in Swedish. Then this is an example of that lag time that I'm describing that exists or used to exist, I should say, between urban and rural areas. Well, this is all a thing of the past due primarily to a thing called the internet, but also as well to television, radio, to social media, and print media. Now, there's no lag time, which can be very negative in the sense of bad cultural influences being promoted, or maybe should I say no values even being promoted in this culture through many of those mediums. And add to this the various indoctrinations and sexual immorality that are being foisted upon people, and this influence is profound, and it's immediate. On the other hand, if you were here last Sunday and you heard one of our missionaries speak, Ben Renfro from the Great Commission Alliance, he said, can you imagine what the Apostle Paul would have thought of the internet and how he could have used it? He, he would have been, he'd have seen it as a tool for evangelism and a tool for discipleship. It, it's, a, it's a tool that can get into countries that missionaries can never get a visa to go into. Or it can get into homes where people would never consider attending a worship service or never allow their children to attend a Christian worship service. And here we are today in a rural congregation live streaming this service recording this service and then we edit dur during the week and we put it out there on our church's website not to mention that we do this with many of our other church ministries as well and we actually have two part-time IT and audiovisual staff members who make all of this happen what do you think our founding 22 members uh, of this church back in 1894 would think about this today they would probably be astonished and amazed by our opportunity to reach out with the good news of Jesus Christ. But I want you to understand, all of these rapid changes and all these cultural influences creates various challenges as well. Researcher David Kinneman writes, today the influence of technology, pop culture, media, entertainment, science, and an increasingly secular society are intensifying the differences between the generations. And many churches, leaders, and parents, the established generation, have a difficult time understanding these differences, much less relating to the values, uh, beliefs, and assumptions that have spawned them. So what we need, he says, is younger leaders. You know, we need people who speak the language of their peers. They're sorely needed because today, Today's 20-somethings are not just slightly or incrementally different from previous generations. The gap has gotten bigger. 
than it's ever been before. And it's actually one of the reasons why I know that it's my time to transition into retirement in the next year and a half or so because we need younger generations to be able to communicate more clearly and effectively with, uh, with uh, younger generations. We're also seeing this very tension being played out daily in our culture politically, where the ideals of one generation are at odds with the ideals of another, viewed as progressives many times and conservatives. Unfortunately, some of this is even being played out in the church, where numerous evangelicals have become preoccupied with saving America, like this is our last stand, and that this is our mission. Well, I have to tell you, I really agree with Pastor Anley Stanley, from North Point Church in Atlanta, Georgia, when he says, when a local church becomes preoccupied with saving America at the expense of saving Americans, it has forsaken its mission. And what is our mission here at Mission Covenant Church? We have a mission statement. It's Mission Covenant Church exists to connect the unconnected to Jesus Christ and together grow as fully devoted followers of him. Now, our elder board is presently considering tweaking this a little bit and presenting it to our membership, maybe shortening it a little bit, perhaps making it more uh, contemporary and catchy and, and those types of things so it's easier to grasp for people. But basically, those components of evangelism and discipleship are present there, and those things are going to stay no matter what slight changes or alterations may happen in our mission statement. Reaching out to those who are far from God and then helping one another grow in the Christian faith. And this all comes from Jesus' final words. When he told us before he ascended in Matthew chapter 28 that we're to go and make disciples, and he told us here in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 that we would receive power when the Holy Spirit would come upon us, and we'd be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. Now we come to Acts chapter 13, and until the very end of the book of Acts, and even beyond, that's what we see happening. We see the gospel spreading to the ends of the earth. It's why some churches today like to call themselves Acts 29 churches because they believe that, that that's the ongoing mission, the work of the Holy Spirit advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. In Acts chapters 1 through 12, the church has been established. The Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost. The gospel goes out from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and it's going beyond. We have the church office of the deacon being established. We have the church's first martyrs in Stephen and James. We have Paul's dramatic conversion and then Paul's call to minister to the Gentiles. And even Peter, the pillar of the, the uh, early church in Jerusalem, uh, he learns that the gospel is for Gentiles as well. And there's miraculous healings and much more. And at the end of this early section of Acts chapters uh, 1 through 12, we find Paul and Barnabas and John Mark returning to Antioch after bringing a relief gift to Jerusalem from the Gentile church in Antioch and to Palestine to help in the initial stages of this great famine uh, that was striking there. Now we are in Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. Now the church at Antioch there... There were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, uh, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them 
and they went off. We have prophets and teachers who are the instrumental in establishing the church and uh, uh, instructing people in the faith. And this church, by the way, the people that are listed there is a multi-ethnic church. We have North Africans there. We have uh, Jewish people there. We have Gentile people there. It's this multi-ethnic church. uh, And they're worshiping God and they're fasting and they're praying. And how long did they fast? We don't know. But all of us fast a little bit uh, because that's why we have breakfast in the morning. We break the fast. For some of us, that's 12 to 14 hours from the last meal that we would eat. Uh, when I was be prior to going into the ministry and I would gather and worship at church on Sunday mornings, prior to becoming a pastor, I would fast every Sunday morning. I would give Sunday mornings to the Lord and not eat till noon and I would come and give that time to the Lord. Uh, I didn't break fast. Uh, on those Sundays back in those days. But the Holy Spirit here speaks and directs them. Was it audible? We don't know. It comes across like it was spoken audibly. Was it a still small voice? Was it the consensus of all the believers there uh, praying and believing that God's Spirit was guiding them all to that same decision? We don't know. But they laid hands on them and they sent them off. And by the way, verse 9 in this text is going to tell us that Saul here, that's his Hebrew name, is also called Paul, which is his Roman name. And Paul's ministry is going to be to the Gentiles, so he's going to adopt and use his Gentile name. And 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22, tells us why he would do something like that. He says, I become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I may save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel. Now, I believe we have a slide of Paul's first missionary journey here, and I hope it comes through on the screen so that you can see it. We'll periodically refer to this as we're going along. But it says in verses 4 and 5, the two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia. You can see it there on the coast. And they sailed there from there to Cyprus, which is a large island in the Mediterranean Sea. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God to the Jewish synagogue. John was with them as their helper. Now, something you should know is Barnabas was from Cyprus. So it makes sense. Hey, I know the island. Let's go there. Let's, let's begin this missionary journey reaching out uh, there. Verse 6 goes on. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus. So they travel across the island, 90 miles, ministering as they go. And here they encounter the first opposition, or I should actually say more like deception is what they encounter. Because this is a Jewish magician, a sorcerer, not something that would be common or practiced at all in Israel. And his name was Bar-Jesus, meaning the son of Jesus, which was anything, he was anything but. And look at what it says in verse 7. Who was the attendant of the proconsul? Now, the proconsul happens to be the highest ranking authority on the island and the region. And for that matter, these two really were coming up against some forces and some power. So he was the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. The proconsul was an intelligent man sent, and he sent for Barnabas and Paul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elamias, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight into Elamias' eye and said, You are a child of the devil. 
an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light or the sun. Paul stands up to this harasser, this heckler, and you should know this. There are times if you're sharing your faith uh, with others that you will have to do the same thing as well. I have a brother-in-law who was ministering a cross-cultural setting one time when the boo birds came out. And he said, stopped right there, just waved his hand and said, hold it a minute. If you were in my state and you were in my city sharing and I was in the audience, I would respectfully listen to what you had to say. It cut everybody to the quick. And they listened. Well, this guy goes from opposing the Apostle Paul to pridefully having to ask, opposing Paul pridefully to having to ask for help to do any of his daily tasks because he's blinded. And I imagine the Apostle Paul might even be chuckling to himself here a little bit because he's probably thinking, that's for your own good, buddy. I know, I've been there. You know, I hated the church and I was, I was persecuting the church and it changed my life when God did this to me. But what happens next is utterly amazing. The ruler of this entire island comes to faith in Christ. And then now they're going to leave this island and they're going to head inland. We'll have the map here and you can notice uh, they're heading to a different place. And I pick it up in verse 13 here. It says, from Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga and Pamphylia, where John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So they go to the mainland now. This is modern-day Turkey, but it's the region of, really, Galatia back then. And from Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. Now they're at a different Antioch. You'll notice it's up north. That's the furthest north place they went. They actually crossed over some very high mountains 3,500 feet in elevation or so, pretty rugged terrain uh, to get there. But they're in a different Antioch. And on the Sabbath, they went, entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. The synagogue leaders saw there's some new people there. And they did their regular readings from the law and the prophets. And they said, do you have something to say? And this happens to be the Apostle Paul's very first recorded sermon in the Bible. And I encourage you to read that uh, from there, basically, through most of the rest of the chapter this week. We don't have time to look at that right now. But, but basically, Paul summarizes it by saying to them as, as a people, as Israel, that God had chosen them, that God made them great, that God led them out of Egypt, that God put up with them for 40 years in the wilderness, that God had uh, conquered Canaan for them, and God gave them uh, the land, the promised land. And then it says, what did God do when they were in the promised land? He gave them judges. He gave them Samuel the prophet. He gave them a king, Saul, for 40 years. And then he raised up David from the line of Jesse. And David was a man after God's own heart who would do God's will. And then he jumps from there a thousand years ahead to Jesus. And Paul shows here the fulfillment of Christ in connecting all these Old Testament prophecies uh, in the Bible to who Jesus was and to what Jesus did and showing that Jesus was truly and unmistakably the promised Messiah. And finally, Paul gives them a call to action a call to respond to Jesus, as well as a warning that what would happen if they rejected the truth about Jesus. And uh, it's actually a quote from the prophet Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 5, and that you can see is in verse 41. Now, what does Paul do? 
He uses common ground to relate to his listeners as his launching pad, grounding his message in something that his audience would understand very clearly. Yet at the same time, he directs them to Jesus and the uniqueness of Jesus as the Christ. It took courage and it took conviction on the Apostle Paul's part. Now again, last week, missionary Ben Renfro mentioned in our moment for mission that most people are terrified to even share their faith. And I have to say, this isn't necessarily a bad thing because that forces us to depend upon God. It forces us to trust God. However, if our fears dictate that we do not share our faith, then it's not the Holy Spirit who's guiding us. It is the evil one who's winning the victory. Now, a very natural way to share our faith is to ask someone who's far from God to share with us the most amazing thing that's ever happened in their life. What's the most amazing thing that's ever happened to you? And then listen to them. And they will tell you about some achievement or some uh, accomplishment, some promotion they received. Maybe they'll tell you about their marriage or the birth of their children. Maybe they'll tell you about some incredible trip they took somewhere in the world. Then, uh, and most oftentimes in those situations, they will want to know then what your, the most amazing thing happened in your life. And you can establish common ground by saying, oh yeah, you know, when I got married or when my children were born, or you can share some of those neat things. Those were special times for me. But the most amazing thing, you can share your testimony, is how you came to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and how he has changed your life. I have to tell you, in counseling settings with people who are outside the church, who are facing various life struggles, and uh, my testimony and my background from where I've come from often resonates with them. And it gives me an opportunity to share my testimony and how the Lord has changed the trajectory of my life and how the Lord has even changed the complete trajectory of my family. Well, it goes on in verse 42. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. When Paul and Barnabas a answered them boldly, we had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord God has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles. For you may, may bring salvation to the end, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the Lord, word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. You know, as often happens in the history of the church, great spiritual advances meet great spiritual hostility. And many times Christian people think opposition means that, oh, we're doing something wrong. You know, that there's something wrong in our beliefs or in our actions. Maybe we need to change our methods or what we're doing. That's what we call in the church is faith and, and uh, con doc, you know, faith and, and conduct. Do we got to change something in our conduct or something about our faith? And nothing can be further from the truth. Most often, it's the very sign that we're heading in the right direction uh, and doing the right things. As Jesus said, recorded in the Gospels of Luke, woe to you if all people speak well of you. Do you hear that, church? If, you, if we aren't ruffling a couple of feathers along the way, we're probably not sharing the gospel. 
the good news of Jesus Christ. Because the good news is also bad news for some people. Well, verses 49 to 52 continues. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. But the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they took the dust from their feet, as a, shook the dust from their feet as a warning and went on to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Sometimes you have to move on. There's not a response. And they were booted out, so they moved on to the next one. But, you know, many Christian, Western Christians do find it difficult to count it as joy when faithful living or faithful sharing of the good news, witnessing, results in persecution, results in opposition. And I have to say, when I traveled to Eastern Europe three decades ago, this very issue was the clear dividing line between those who had suffered horrendously in the East under communism and Christians in America who most often live lives of ease. I encountered so many people who had lost loved ones, uh, pastors whose spouses had died because of starvation or other ill treatment because of their faith in Jesus Christ. These were people who were impoverished, who lost their livelihoods and all kinds of things, and they had so much joy in the Lord. And I come back to America and Christians are, well, I didn't get that pay raise. Well, I didn't get that increase or I didn't get that job I wanted, right? It was startling. People had the joy of the Lord who were suffering so much, people living in such ease and such comfort, and they're the ones who are sourpusses. It's like, it didn't add up, but that's what this is saying here. Chapter 14 continues. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord, both who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. And the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. And there was also a, a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and uh, to the surrounding country. And the map would show that again where they continued to preach the gospel. And verse 8 there says, In Lystra there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. And then it tells us in verses 9 through 18 that Paul and Barnabas, through the power of the Holy Spirit, end up uh, healing this man. He's healed from his lameness. And the people are astonished. And the Gentile people think, oh, the gods have come down to visit us. The Greek gods of Zeus and Hermes. And Paul, of course, is all upset. They're bringing animals to sacrifice and do all this kind of worship of him. And him and Barnabas tear their garments and say, no, no, we're human beings just like you. Verse 19 says, Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. And they stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. They thought he's a false teacher for proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. They threw so many stones at him, and they knew if someone was dead, they were dead. They thought he was dead. Verse 20, but after the disciples had gathered around them, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. 
and they preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. And he said, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. We must go through these hardships. And that's not a pleasant message. In fact, many Christians in the faith have quit following God or they've just quit sharing their faith when the tough times come because of opposition to the gospel message. Jesus in the gospel tells us, though, that the victory is not for those who start. It's for those who finish. And Matthew 10, verse 22 says, he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Now, the rest of this chapter speaks of the missionaries' return to each of these previous locations that you've seen on that map. They just reverse their route and go all the way back to each one of those towns uh, until they get back to Antioch. They've sailed seas. They've crossed mountains. They've surveyed cities. They've dealt with a magician and as well as government officials, religious leaders, even philosophical people, and more. And then verse 27 tells us here, On arriving there, they're back in Antioch, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Chapter 15, verse 4, just jumping ahead to next week's a little bit, it says, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Verse 12 The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling them the signs and wonders God had done among them, among the Gentiles, through them. Do you see the theme here? It could all be summarized as this is what God has done, what God did through them. First thing you have to realize, this is God's work, okay? It's not our work per se. Yes, it's our responsibility, but it's God's work. Number two, the Holy Spirit has and will empower us for this task. We have to ask God's Spirit to guide us daily, to fill us daily, so we can do that and share our faith. Number three, this requires an unshakable trust in God to do it, because if we're not trusting in God, we're trusting in only our own abilities, our own powers, or our own intellect, or whatever, we're going to be in trouble. This, you know, requires unshakable trust in God. And number four, God's people must be passionate about this responsibility, about our mission. And I ask you today, are you? Are you passionate about the gospel, about winning people in your network to faith in Christ? Are you more passionate today about winning Americans to Christ than you are about saving America politically? Answer that question in your own hearts today. Where are you? I I hear lots of people getting lathered up and rattled up all about all kinds of politically and what's happened the latest. I don't hear a lot of people saying, man, we got to share our faith with people. People need Jesus. We've got to be active in the church. We've got to start doing this. This this has got to become important to us. This has got to become first nature to us. I don't hear that. But I hear the latest of what's on the news and what latest happened here politically and people are all revved up about this and this indoctrination that's going on. How about sharing Jesus? How about telling others about Christ? I think the Apostle Paul said it best and we're going to find this out as we come to the conclusion of this series in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, when he said, however I consider my life worth nothing to me, my only aim is to finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given to me the task of testifying 
to the good news of God's grace. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we readily acknowledge today that it's not always easy for us to share our faith. But Lord, we know that that's what's changed us. And we know that that's what others around us in our spheres of influence need, is the good news of Jesus. They need to turn from their lives of sin and their waywardness and and their lives that are far from you, God, and turn to you. And God, forgive us for the times that we're investing all our efforts and energy and passions in lesser things or just so hung up on cultural problems. And and they're very important and they do sting and, and we can play a part there. But God, it should never, never, never become more important to us than sharing the good news of Jesus with others because that's what changes people and that's what even changes cultures. And so God, I pray for your church to rise up and to pass on the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ to those who are far from God. May we be faithful to that effort, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.